This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Jackie. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. Get me back my It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all Coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you Its origin, alien. Location, Antarctica. Age, unknown. Intent, survival. Destination, man. John Carpenter's The Thing, the ultimate in alien terror, rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for local listings. Alrighty, folks. Welcome once again, you degenerates. This is Cinema Degeneration. We are continuing our John Carpenter Appreciation Month. And this week, we have we have quite a doozy. We have the ultimate in living horror, The Thing, from 1982. Uh, written by Bill Lancaster and directed by J.C., the man John Carpenter himself. And joining me this evening for this little romp is my good friend Daniel Goad. How you doing, Daniel? Doing really good. Happy to be here. Yeah, we picked a, a quite a doozy to do this this week. Because, uh, I, I mean, everyone has an opinion on this film. So uh, we, we may be ruffling feathers with some of our comments or we may be falling right in line with what people expect us to talk about with this classic yeah well i do have a couple of questions that uh one of which is a big one and i will save to the very very end because i feel like it's only fitting to discuss this at the end but it's uh yeah this is the one that is dis- divisive amongst fans it's either uh ultimately is either really loved or hated i really don't know anybody that at least at least i don't that falls in the middle with this film it's, it's a love it or hate it kind of film well, it's a good gauge of friendships because if you have someone that doesn't like this and you love it, I mean, it's 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 really hard to go like, well, I can't just look past you for not liking the thing. Um, hope you have a good life. Uh, I'm gonna right. go the other way. So this is definitely right. I always say there's two modes. Test. Yeah, this to me, this is the test I use with a lot of people. And <laughs> like, do you love the thing? No. Oh, okay. You're you're either you're either in one of two camps. You either love the thing or you're wrong. And that's just my opinion on it. Pretty much. I've loved, I've loved this film since the beginning. And, you know, even as a little kid, I love the suspense of it. I, you know, a lot of people refer, refer to it as a horror movie, which it's part horror. You know, that element is definitely there. And, you know, part sci-fi. But really, in the end, it's a suspense thriller. It's always about, you know, let's face it, who is the thing? You know, and uh, it's fucking ultimate and masterful storytelling it's it's what i would imagine uh alfred hitchcock would have been doing if he had continued doing 
you know, films and lived well into the, you know, the 80s directing. I feel like that it's Carpenter trying to do his best sci-fi Hitchcock. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong with that, but that's, that's what I've always seen it. But let's go ahead and do the quick IMDb synopsis. This is real simple here, folks, and it goes as follows. A research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. And that might be giving away a lot right off at the beginning, but, you know, if this movie is exactly 39 years old, it's almost as old as I am, and... (laughs) You know, if you haven't seen it by now, by God, you probably should have, and you should have seen it multiple times times uh do you remember how old you were the first time you saw this daniel no actually it's one of those things where you you have these classic movies and the longer you live you really you're only remembering the last time you thought about it so the the it's really hard for me to pinpoint any any age that i saw any movie um but this is one of those where obviously there's no there's no spoiler warnings here like again it's it's near 40 years old it's insane how long this movie has been popular, even if it had a kind of a rocky start when it released. But no, I can't even remember the first time I saw it. I know that I was too young. <laughs> I was too young to watch it. Yeah. I, I'm sure that it it instilled a fascination of that, uh, you know, that car crash thing where it's it's so disgusting you can't look away. It, it, the the interest in the horror and what they achieved with this it was. I'm sure it, it scarred me. So, you know, thanks. Thanks, JC. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. I, 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 however, do remember seeing this for the first time. Uh, remember renting it at the video store. I was about six, maybe seven at the oldest. And I was already into horror movies, yes. And there's no reason whatsoever for any seven-year-old to see something like The Thing. You know, <laughs> like, no reason whatsoever. But... I did, and I just remember being disgusted by it, being fascinated by it, and as time went on, I appreciated more and more, you know, different aspects of the film. I appreciated, you know, the special effects. I appreciated the monsters most of all at the beginning, but as it, you know, came to be over, you know, over the years, as I became a teenager, as I became a young adult, and then an older adult, I, I feel like I've uh, gotten a greater appreciation for the mystery of the story of like, you know, of who is the thing or what is the thing and how does it spread? But one thing, I think we ought to do this first. Um, I know we discussed this pre-show about talking about the two different versions of the movies that I saw. Now, since you didn't see this version is the 1982 uh, network TV version. I will give a quick synopsis of this and a quick minute review so that if you have anything you want to pick my brain about, you know, since uh, this was limited to uh, the Shout Factory DVD or or Blu-ray, it's it's an oddity to withhold, uh, to to see the network, the CBS cut ran about 12 minutes uh, shorter. They cut about 12 minutes out of it. And it edited out almost all the creature effects, good 95% of them. Half the time, you never see the thing, you never see the monster, you never see the dogs, you never see any of the autopsy footage. It's always shot from an alternative angle that just, to be quite honestly, cuts the balls off of the scene. 
and it really ruins the movie. Now, and there's a voiceover guy. This is the part I wanted to say because you told me, you know, save it for the show and, and you know, kind of inform me there. There is a, a voiceover guy that introduces every character like, you know, this is R.J. McCready, helicopter pilot, you know, uh, let go from the Air Force, blah, blah, blah. And then Dr. Blair, this is Blair, you know, brilliant chemist from Massachusetts and just this, this, this disembodied voice that's nobody from any of the film, none of the actors from the film. It's not even John Carpenter. It's nobody. It's just this really weird disembodied voiceovers. The edits are all different. And the music, oh God, the, the music is even uh, a bunch of alternative uh, takes and stuff on it. And the music just doesn't work. It just goes to show that it's vastly different and it ruins the mood, the multiple cuts and editing changes. It just, uh, you know, all the heavy effects work is majorly cut. It ruins the impact. The, the, there's this, uh, remember the simulation scene where Blair is doing the simulation on the computer? Yeah, which really dates the movie with as much, you know, technology, even even in the small amounts that it shows. It's very, <laughs> it's very funny to watch older movies do that kind of thing. But yes, I, I remember that scene. Well, everything that's happening on screen, he narrates, like, as if the audience is too dumb to realize what's happening on the screen, even though it's very limited graphics. And that everything that prints out, you know, across the screen, he narrates very woodenly. And it sounds like somebody trying, I don't doubt that it was uh, Wilford Brimley doing the voice, but it just sounded like somebody trying to do their best Wilford Brimley. Well, and it's, just like you said, they probably did do that to dumb it down. You know, the the version that you're explaining, they probably were worried about number one, the rating board, or at least uh, how it was perceived. Because at, at the time, I'm, I mean, obviously there were movies from the '70s that were really extreme. Like this, this was by no means the first movie to show, you know, extreme kind of gruesome. Um, weirdly cosmic sort of uh, mutilation and, you know, kind of things. But yeah, I think they were worried about how it would be perceived and they were trying to make it as, um, as G rated as possible so that everyone could see it. And then, yeah, to dumb it down. I usually use Snowpiercer as an example of, of a company trying to dumb a story down, thinking that the audience won't, won't understand what's, what's going on. Now the TV show or the movie? Uh, the movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's I, I hate this the pandering to the audience is, uh, in this TV cut. Yeah, it definitely treats the audience as if they're a whole bunch of dummies, you know. And I just, I felt like the you know that, that the it, it was just insulting. And the ending has a very much a clipped on ending with one of the dogs escaping. You know, and running out across the the frozen landscape, and you know, and this really, and again, insulting end voiceover is just like, "Watch your friends and look out for the thing," and it's just like, "Oh, you're insulting the intelligence of the movie." So, I watched that version version, so the rest of y'all don't have to. <laughs> and I'll give my quick rendition of of or rating of it right now. That that movie, that version of the thing. Is a five out of ten the TV cut, and I will admit that if that's the version that I would have had been introduced to in the beginning, I'd have never watched it again, never. 
it it just it dumbs it down it cuts everything out that is worth a damn it changes the editing and the musical cues and the entire flow of the film and it shows just how much you know post-production matters and how much you know editing and sound work matters and this the overall aesthetics of, of a film and they ruin what is otherwise a perfect movie so I will and leave it at that why, unless you have any questions unless you have any questions. Well, I just that's why you let the creators create. I just I can't it's so infuriating when people want to put a filter or to change something. It, it's it's like the um it's like the songs on the radio on the top 10 or the top 30, but they bleep, they bleep out all the words that are part of the lyrics. And it's like, well, then why even play the song? So it's the same thing like I'm glad I never watched that version, but it makes me really curious. Again, a car crash metaphor. It's you know you you want to look at it to see why, what could have been, you know, because if that was released, we could have never had the the influx of the uh, inspirations after the thing came out. We we wouldn't have had the um, I guess the the wave of people who were they just got out of their seats. It's like, oh, well, I want to make movies like this. I, you know, inspiring people to, to do the special effects and to re- how did they do that? How did they do the, the, the logo at the beginning? Like, how do they get that effect with the head and the, the, the crab head monster? And that's insane. It's just crazy of how, how close we are always of a different present. Like if, if things would have just changed a little bit, a few years ago or the movies, yeah. the TV shows, you know, uh, things that happen, man, that would be a terrible present. Like right now, if we didn't have the thing that we currently have, as far as questions yeah. go, the only one that I'm actually curious about, cause I, I don't want to spend too much time on that version. Cause I, I know that whoever listens, they, they know of the version that's, you know, is streamable. You can buy it, you know, the commercial version. Yeah. The, the commercial um, version that's at large. Yeah. The only thing I'm curious about is because of an edit that was that drastic, that's actually changing the whole aspect of the film. Because if it has a narrator, it has a different sort of ending. Uh, you're taking away all of the meat of, of, the, of the movie. Was there anything that they added or they changed that was kind of superfluous? Because I, I know with the reason that so many people love the thing is John Carpenter was such an OCD madman and everything kind of, it makes sense. The geometry of the the Arctic center, the um, construction of where they put stuff, the editing, uh, you know, very, very tight movie, you know, in form, that kind of thing. Did they add or remove anything that really just upended the whole thing other than what you already explained? Like it was, did you, did you notice anything was just, stupid like they they just took out something that was kind of well, crucial like but maybe instance, uh, not a... well like the the scene with the dogs uh the biggest scene i can say is, is the scene with the dogs and the post dog scene where you know where the dog that ends up on the camp from the nor from the norwegian camp shows up they don't really show anything that happens. You hear a bunch of the, the screaming and the noises coming from off camera. So you never really see the impact of what this creature becomes. You never see the head split open. You never see the tentacles, you know, coming out from that big mass. And you never really see, you know, them torch it on fire. It just cuts. And the post scene where they 
where Blair does the autopsy on the thing, you know which scene I'm talking about, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's completely cut. It cuts to the end of it with Blair sitting there getting questioned and it has some alternate dialogue when it's just like, well, you know, like kind of like a, well, Blair, what do you think of this? And he just looks up at the camera and says nothing. It. I just don't get that. That's like going to a, like a, I don't know, like a Kobe beef. You, you get on a plane, you go to Japan, you get Wagyu beef. That's like $300 made by a chef that you can't even, they're, they're on such a high level. You can't even imagine how good of a chef they are. And you, you just smell it. You don't eat it. You're not allowed to eat it. (laughs) You just smell it. And it's like, Oh, well, I guess that was worth it. That's just insane that they would cut out. It's well. It's not the whole point of the movie. Like I know a lot of people like the thing because it is that kind of body horror. Um, you know, you're afraid of what's inside of you, who's around you, the whole paranoia thing. And it's you know the exclamation marks within the script and stuff. It is the changing. It's it's when the thing is on the screen. If you take that away, I mean, that's just insane. I know like. Uh, we use Jaws a lot as a reference, both you and I, and then when we speak to some of our other filmmaker friends of like an mm-hmm. impact of of a creature or a character. It's like it, you don't have to see them all the time to to have them have an impact in the story. You know, you can have this sort of running suspense where you don't have to look behind you. You know, something's there. But man, taking away the the thing, you know, call it something else. If you're going to edit it and have that kind of uh, impact, just be like, well, it's sort of the thing. It's it's off the frame thing or, you know. Something yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It's just it took away a lot of the I mean, it's still emphasized on the suspense of who was the thing, you know, but without ever quite showing it, it's like you almost want to go, well, who cares? We never see what it can be. Exactly. Because you're not afraid of it. I mean, it's that's the whole impact of like. I mean, obviously the editing was kind of, I, I I like how long it stuck on the objects. I mean, it was the whole thing with their special effects teams. They wanted to show it off and, you know, how impressed John Carpenter was of like some of the things that, you know, their team achieved, but it was the whole thing of showing it, you know, because then you would be afraid, right? You know, everyone's afraid of the dark. I mean, going back to just John Carpenter, I mean, Halloween made me afraid of the dark. I do remember that, but it was just like, you still need to see something. I mean, something needs to be that, um, that linchpin in the fear. I mean, everyone, everyone can be afraid of the unknown, but it's even more intense when you see it coming at you, when you know, it's there, it's tangible. So, yeah, taking that away is just kind of just moot. Yeah, and I kind of hope the effects team, which you know was headed up by Rob Bottin, I I, I kind of hope that they've never watched the TV version because none of their work ends up on, oh, on I the bet screen. But... I bet they did, but they burned it or something. I'm sure, <laughs> yeah, I'm right. sure yeah. they were just like, well, what did I do? You know, it's kind of the thing yeah. of like the the hidden people that are credited in a movie that you never know. You know, they're at the end of the credits or they get a special thanks or something, but they're super crucial to how the movie was made but yeah that just you know that's kind of rude it just you take away all that work that they that they were proud of you know everyone was very very happy with with what they got and yeah that's just cutting 12 minutes is a lifetime (laughs) that's a lot of footage yeah that's a big chunk even up for a two hour plus you know movie uh it's yeah it's a 
Yeah, it's it's just an insult. I think that what the thing runs an hour and forty five, hour and fifty minutes, so they cut twelve out of it. They probably added two minutes back into it uh, that was some superfluous, you know, throwaway lines of dialogue and, and extra shots that they had of the narration. characters. Like, yeah, like uh, the scene with um oh, uh, not not Bennings. Who am I, who am I thinking here when uh, Doctor Copper gets his hands bitten off? That whole scene, like, you see the chest open up, that's it. You see him scream and go down. They come in with the flamethrowers, end scene. There's well, none see, of this, the part with the head turning into a, the, the spider. It's, that's what I'm curious about, because nearly every major chapter point for, from, you know, when when the thing actually starts chowing down, like after the dog... When when that stuff mm-hmm. starts going, it's almost like a beat. It's a pattern. It's like it's like a song, where the chorus is every time the thing pops up. Eliminating those is literally super important story parts. I mean, just the thing of um, uh, the blood test, and when you have those different things that happen, all of those super important parts of the movie are bookended by super grotesque and gruesome scenes. So I can't I can't even imagine that it's only twelve minutes of cut. I mean that that could put it into a short film. Forty five minutes. Here's the thing, uh, you know, shortened. So that's ah, insane. Yeah, the, the abridged version. <laughs> like yeah, if you but don't have enough time to to watch the whole thing, here's forty minutes of literally just Molotovs and Kurt Russell saying cool things in his big old hat. Right, right, and his magnificent beard. You know, <laughs> you know, like even the, the intro with him or like they they kind of hang on a, like a shot of his face forever. And it's a bland voiceover. But it, the whole scene with him, you know, playing with the uh, electronic chess game and then he gets mad at it and pours the, the drink into it, frying the system out. The whole scene is just cut. Cheating, it's a yeah, whole cheating. massive scene. Yeah. Cheating, bitch. But but yeah. Yeah. Not good. But folks. We love you out there in cinema degeneration land. So, I watched it so that you don't have to. But it is—it's an oddity. It's—it's it's a neat thing to have. I'm kind of glad that they included a, another full version of the movie on the Shop Factory disc. You know, and it's—you uh, know—it's it's worth it to have it. You know, in a restored version. The the version on their Blu-ray is magnificent. <clears throat> but yeah, that's uh, all I can really say about the TV the TV cut of the movie. But, you know, the, the film itself, uh, gosh, I we don't know where we can start. There's so many points we could talk about it. If we talked about it in a linear fashion and covered every step of it along the way, we talk for six hours. So I'll try to, well, you know, that's, that's one of the things where, because this is such a, uh, a movie that either, you know, you watch every, winter you know usually i remember the thing coming on on tv around october november when it was getting cold outside or you know around december or a lot of people like watching the thing kind of like an anniversary i know the the actual arctic center uh they have uh, the thing streaming like they watch it inaugurally every year before yeah, every year i read that and that's like super cool so i know that your audience has already watched the movie again if you haven't Please watch it. You will you will be completely satisfied. But we we don't have to do it in a linear way. I think you can kind of we can jump around. We can talk about things because again, we're not spoiling a, a forty year old movie. Um, 
but it's and it's whatever. Are, I don't know why. Yeah, and if we are, I don't know why you're listening to this show in, anyway. If you've never seen the thing, I think uh, <laughs> with I'm not trying to be insulted, but I'm, I believe my audience has probably seen the thing at least once in their lifetime. So we're yeah, like I said, we're not spoiling anything. But uh, you know, I think it's it bears mentioning, you know, that this film when it came out was not successful. I think it barely made. The you know the budget was somewhere around fifteen million. Uh, the movie made I think nineteen or twenty during its theatrical run, and when you think of it in the terms of of things, uh, no pun intended, <clears throat> but uh, it's not not uh, you know not great. Uh, uh, the box office draw, you know, was not not good for this film, and it was almost career ending for. Uh, John Carpenter, he has said, you know, many times he takes all his, you know, movies and his failures, you know, that have happened along the years as, you know, it takes them pretty hard, but this one disappointed him the most, you know, uh, it just, a lot of people I don't think were ready for the gore, I don't think they were ready for the darkness, you know, the, the bleak tones, overall I, tones of it. I think that right there is why John Carpenter is is heralded because he he took all those chances even if the the era he was in wasn't ready for it we we thank people like that afterward you know it's kind of like the um like the painter complex like you know you're only famous when you die and then then all your your art is like you know super popular but you know again we're there's a whole community appreciating people that's like that that are making these weird it's like mandy I'm going to bring up Mandy. It's like, it's so weird yeah. and so ridiculous that it doesn't make sense, but it's entertaining. You like it. You're interested. You keep thinking about it. For some reason, it burns images into your head, and it's it's something that you can reference back to. Again, because I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm 100% positive that most people who watch this are inspired to do something else. You don't have to necessarily do something in cold weather. It doesn't have to be an alien, you know, but you can play on the human aspects. You can make it a paranoid, super claustrophobic movie. You can use those, those editing pinpoints and, you know, the music. And I'm happy that he took a chance because eventually that, that made him more successful as a director, even if it wasn't super instant because, yeah, I just looked it up. Fifteen million in nineteen eighty-two, due to inflation, is about forty-one point five million dollars today. So that's still quite a bit of money to you know yeah. put into a very experimental. We need to go to you know on location to make a snow movie or to heat up the L.A. sound studios or not not heat up, uh, mm-hmm. cool down. It's just insane. Yeah, because I think they filmed part of it in British Columbia, and, and yeah. I think they originally went to Alaska. Yeah, and, and they so built they, they weren't, uh, which is ridiculous. Yeah, because again, it's 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 that um, the um, you know movies twenty thirty years ago they would put that extra effort in. They would do it for the camera. I'm not I'm not saying that it doesn't happen now, but it's definitely changed because of technology and what we can achieve and what you can build on a studio or a sound set. But yeah, like they went there, and like when you're watching the movie, it it it's so much more satisfying knowing that they're they're running and walking through an actual built set that they traveled to. Like it was that whole thing of um, 
that story that like Kurt Russell was like, uh, like walking up the mountain for the day, or like they would, uh, they would have to go in volleys on the helicopters back and forth. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it, it's that legacy of, of a movie of how much effort that was put into it. Yeah. And like you said, and thankfully they did it anyway. I think they knew that they had the odds kind of stacked against them, so to speak, you know, the world may not have been ready for this, but I, I try not to think about like what the world would be like without the thing, you know, uh, it's such an important film with who I am <clears throat> and why I've decided to do a lot of what I do. But, uh, you know, and I think it also bears mentioning that this opened the same day as Blade Runner. Two movies is equally legendary for different reasons, you, you know, both not appre- uh, underappreciated when they were initially released. Both heralded as classics in later years. So I didn't, I think realize that, that. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, it was both released the same day, and two movies is equally uh, as impressive, both for different reasons. But let's go ahead and get into to the opening. I, I, I got to say that I love the opening title. Yeah, I know we're not doing this in a linear fashion, but I do want to mention this towards the beginning, that they they created the effect. Now, this is a remake, you know, uh, for everybody who may not know this. Yes, it is a remake, and it's it's a remake that greatly surpasses the original. Uh, the original was The Thing from Another World, 1951. And the effect they used to recreate the, the title of The Thing burning was literally they had a... A, the title on the screen and they had a plastic bag strung up behind it that they had set on fire. And when the bag was, was ignited and they had this uh, smoke filled fish tank that was covered with a plastic bag, plastic garbage bag. When the bag was lit, it created the effect of the title burning onto the screen. And I just love the effect and to know that it's so was something so simple. Once, once again, you know, 1981, uh, not created with a whole lot of uh, CGI and visual effects, but actually things put on the screen. Well, I think that's why this movie endures so much because it's just going back to the inspiration, you know, obviously it's a lot to make a movie, especially on this scale, you know, having so many moving parts, having such an intricate story and with as much special effects that was put into it. But Looking at that, like watching how that's done, I'm sure. I mean, it's been redone. It's there's tutorials on how to do it. People, but you know, they were like, that was the first time anyone saw that effect. Especially like the, um, uh, the matte paintings, like that had been done before. You know, the the different things of using a blue screen and and different perspectives, but it was all techniques that weren't that extremely difficult to do. Like anyone could make a model of an air or an aircraft or a UFO or whatever, and be able to still use those same techniques. And it just, it just made it. That's why I think I hold this movie. So up in my list of favorite movies because of the number of things that it does for people. I mean, number one, it, yes, it's a great movie, but it's also like a great teaching tool. And, Mm-hmm. Now, this was one of uh, Kurt Russell's first movies. I mean, in, in his selection of like handful of first things that he did, most of the people who were in well, this yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a, like a star-studded it was, cast. and uh, it, I don't know. It's just insane to think of 
the the output of what they did versus how difficult it was but it was just a great group of people being creative and being super uh inventive of what they could do yeah and like to think yeah this is one of the uh, what the second film that uh john carpenter not john carpenter but the second film that kurt russell had done with john carpenter following up uh escape from new york you know, and it was really part of his transition of trying to, you know, go away from, uh, you know, the the Disney kid. You know, he was transitioning from that child actor to the adult actor, you know. And and to think, you know, this cemented him as a legit actor, I think, uh, between this and uh, Snake Plissken and Escape from New York. But this is one of the first films that Keith David had ever had ever done and we think second third film maybe he had done a little bit of tv work but we got you know wilford brimley uh, richard mauser as, as clark is really really good in it too i mean this movie's got an impressive cast all around Again, Tom's weights just everyone i mean yeah like everyone was perfect like i didn't there wasn't one character that i i disdain like you know usually there's on usually ensemble casts that are very uh, secluded, or you you can't really hide behind certain parts of the story. Sometimes there's always someone who gets under your skin, or there's a character that doesn't make sense, or they do things that are kind of like, well, that you know, that's not what, what a real person would do. But all of these are very personable characters. They they all have reactions, you know, especially when stuff start hit, starts hitting the fan, and then you know the stuff that happens with Fuchs and like. It, they're all different reactions that do different things, and I wish it was a longer movie. It would be really cool to have like a stretched out, uh, like longer time frame. But I'm also happy that it it did happen as quick as it did because it 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 builds up that that pace, like that tension of like you know how how much more can you last, especially in the the temperament that they are, like where where they are in the world, how quickly you can just you know freeze to death. Well, I think you made a good point earlier when we were discussing the the TV version and how it kind of just tears it down, uh, you know, with taking out all the appearances of the actual monster, of the alien, of the thing. I, I think, you know, each scene, you know, once it's introduced, you know, once that dog makes it to the camp, once that Norwegian chopper shows up and and you know when the when the norwegian guy comes out machine gunning after the dog you know these guys these are guys just on a research you know mission they're not there it's not wartime you know uh, although uh, was it Nalls that makes the joke is <laughs> that maybe we're we're at war with norway you know yeah. which you know they don't know what's going on but once it becomes known that the dog and was you know, infected, so to speak, you know, with not, it's not a virus, you know, I mean, it's an organism, it's an alien. But once they get to that point, it moves along at such a brisk pace, there's not a wasted frame. I feel like there's nothing in it that's uh, like superfluous. It's nothing that feels like padding, nothing that feels extra and unnecessary. So as much as I would love to see, you know, a director's cut i'll just take some of that footage's deleted scenes if it ever comes about i don't need to see it in the film as a completed version because yeah. it's a perfect film yeah i'm it pretty really sure is. now after 40 years i think i think we've seen every everything that's going to be released from it i mean who knows there could be a vault somewhere underneath some sort of 
you know, John Carpenter uh, prop warehouse or something. So who knows? But yeah, I don't feel like I need to see it, though. You know, if it ever sees the light of day, I'm perfectly happy, 100% happy with the film that we have, you know, because but every scene is bookended, you know, with an appearance by the thing. And it's always different. I think that's part of the allure of it is this thing is always shape-shifting it's always changing because it's always you know taking the form of its latest victim yeah or the uh, organisms that we never saw you know that was part of the design where it was always something that looked unique and it was of the other planets or the other things that it had been around and all these different just forms and this goop and this you know slime and these bones and these structures and it's just cool because you don't know what you're looking at again that's really harping on the edit that there was done for the tv it's like you're taking away everything that makes the movie like ugh, i don't even i hate that that exists now <laughs> well like i said i watched it so you don't have to <laughs> It's, you know, I figured, you know, at one point I had that disc for about two years and I never watched it because I just really didn't have an interest. And I'm like, you know, if I'm going to be thorough, I'm like, I'm going to have to have it be said that I saw this version. I was like, whoo, it's uh, it's it's something else. It's there's, you know, to go through all the changes, all the things that were taken away and all the things that were added. It there's dozens and dozens of cuts. It's so bad. Well, the the thing that'll make you sad is imagine all the people that watched that version of the film and always had that as what they thought of the thing was and never watched it again and ruined their entire outlook on both John Carpenter and like that movie. And then whenever, whenever they're in a conversation, be like, Oh, I don't know why everyone likes that movie. I watched it and it was awful, but like you never, they'll never know that it wasn't the actual you know, real version that they were right. To watch. What a sad life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel like they're just like the people, you know, that just, they never had a chance. The odds were stacked against them from the beginning. And yeah, it's just sad. It's just sad. Now I got to ask now, since we're, like I said, not really covering this in, in a linear fashion, what is your favorite, uh, like iteration of the thing? Which version of the monster that pops up is your favorite? Well, because I, I got to look at it kind of in a in a logistic way, just the fascination of how it was created, but also in kind of the the kid like looking at it and going, "Well, this is on movie; it, it's real." Like you know, I I do know when I watched it, I would you you didn't have the separation of reality and then what you were looking at. Like I, I do remember that. Like I I hadn't hit the age yet where I could separate the two. That's why I think it scared the shit out of me so much. So right, right. But the head crab is – it has to be my, my favorite. I mean I do – I do like the double-faced one that, that they burned that, that is the, like the number one in the sequel like they, that they find. Uh, that's the last one that they actually right. – But it's got, it's got to be the head because it's just it, – every time I watch it, even now, even if I've, I've seen this movie like 60 times or something, the, I think the only movie I've watched more than, than the thing is probably Snatch. Uh, but it's – Really? It's, it's impeccable right. of just watching 
the things pop out of the head and then it's crawling around on the on the floor and it's just like how did you do that like i know i've seen stuff like behind the scenes of alien and how the face hugger was like shot in reverse and like these different these tactics and things and these camera tricks but i i love that scene and just playing with fire i mean i know that's from from the original and that was a big thing of uh of, of having that kind of effect but like just the practicality of everything in those small close quarters and how the crew and the the everything was being worked around this this small area and everything was being set on fire and it was like i'm sure that that's horrible like that was in the 80s that they didn't care you know very dangerous but i think that's my my favorite one i mean i i obviously like um like when windows gets thrown to the wall and you know he gets get burnt on the on the floor but when uh you know the big huge monster jumps up when they're doing the blood test i mean that again oh, and yeah when palmer's kind of exposed and he yeah and he i mean all of ceiling. all of that is is just clear cut i mean you mentioned hitchcock i I don't, I don't like giving John Carpenter a lot of credit because his ego is already as big as it needs to be. But like, <laughs> right? <laughs> the the editor, which is again, I looked up the editor, and he has he didn't do anything notable after this movie. I don't know what happened to his career. I I love the editing in the movie, but I just don't understand why he didn't get bigger, you know, scripts or bigger bigger projects to work on. But um just the pace and the music and everything of that scene and the, you know, heating up the copper wire and having it notably longer than it needed to be. Like all of that was on purpose and it was enjoyably frustrating. And yeah, just that, you know, jump scare pop, it will squeal and then have Palmer jump up to the ceiling and just how big and monstrous, just imposing. I mean, (laughs) Everybody on that set was already pretty tall. I mean, everyone that was casted was a very big dude. Like, I think the only one who wasn't really big was Fuchs. But um, just, yeah, having the Palmer thing just go up to the ceiling and fly up on the thing and just oh it's it that i think those two are my my favorite ones and i'm sorry i'm getting excited i do love this movie it's just insane oh, that no, I, no no need to apologize uh you just yeah, you, i think the head crab i think that's my favorite one i'll split the difference i think that's my favorite one i, I gotta sound, agree with you sound I, it makes when it gets set on fire it's like, like <laughs> i lo- i love the the reaction to the head crab. Now the head crab is my favorite transformation sequence was when they, Oh, what's the character's name? Um, uh, Charles or Helen Norris, because he's uh, having a, uh, he has, has like a heart attack or whatever. Yeah. And then See, yeah, you know, I, I get their names mixed up, but yeah, Norris, uh, he was the first one that should have been infected technically per, right. You know, whatever, but, but when his chest opens up and chops off, uh, Cop- Dr. Copper's hands, Richard Dysart's ha- hands, well, hell, not just his hands, his whole, half his arms. Between that transformation and when the head just kind of melts off, and uh, like you said, and, and the sound that it's making, it sounds... It, it, it sounds like that mechan- weird echo. It's it's like a, uh, like a fake voice in the bottom of a well or something. It's got that weird reverb and that... And it, it's it's that that's the whole point. It doesn't sound like anything. It's so hard to describe how it sounds because it's supposed to be that otherworldly well, kind of 
uh, bellowing banshee kind of scream kind of thing. But yeah, the reactions of everyone is amazing because it that's that's the whole kicker. I mean, yes, it's scary, but but it's but, it's how your people in the story re- react to it, and I I love it. I love everyone's reaction. I think oh I. I love Palmer the best because it's got to be fucking kidding. Because I think that's what everybody's first reaction to seeing that, at least the first time. Like, like really, that's what we're doing now, you know? <laughs> and then you know, again, being experimental, being going above what maybe have been previously done. Like, I guarantee you, people were watching those scenes and they just didn't have a frame of reference. They didn't have anything to like compare what they were watching. I think that's the whole thing of either number one, maybe why it didn't get super popular when it was released, because almost everyone wants to compare a movie. It was like, Oh, well you went to the theater on the weekend. How was it? Oh, well it wasn't as good as this movie or this. You just leave the theater and going, I don't know what I watched, but I, I know I won't sleep tonight. So, you know, it's right, kind of right. those, those kind of movies. But yeah, every transformation sequence, every effect sequence, I, you know, I, I've watched this with an eagle's eye, you know, so many times. Like you said, you watched it probably 60 or more times. I bet you I've watched it at, at, at least a minimum of 60 times. You know, 60. Could be 100 for all I know. I watch this a couple well, times a year, especially in the wintertime. I actually tried thinking of how many times that I watched this movie. Because, I mean, there, there's a few. Everyone's got their favorite movies. And it's it's one of the linchpins of most conversations you know when you're getting to know someone and it's like oh what's your favorite movie what's your favorite band and i was trying to think i was like well i know that i've watched this movie at least once a year for nearly my entire life and i know that i've watched it more than once on some days so i don't you know 60 is kind of a, a a good a good guess but yeah i definitely snatch is my number one watch movie i think i've watched that close to 100 times for sure I bet you, I mean, I bet to say that I've watched this between 75, 100 times is probably a good estimate. The same with Escape from New York. I've seen each film probably an equal number of times. Could be 75, could be 100, but that's not, that's a good rough estimate for me. Yeah, you I know, can't, and I'm a, I'm a fraction of that one. I think I've seen Escape from, well, I'll tell you this, I've seen Escape from L.A. more than I've seen Escape from New York. I'll say that. Oh what? <laughs> Please oh don't man! Or whatever. But yeah, I I think I'll try not I to think, beat you up too bad over that one. I'll be serious. I think I've seen Escape from New York four or five times, and I think I've seen Escape from L.A. because it ran on TV multiple times when I was a kid, uh, more than ten times, in some capacity. Not from start to finish, but like, yeah, I've seen that way more. <laughs> sorry i'm sorry well it's okay it, it doesn't make me like you any less <clears throat> blame, blame uh usa or tnt you know one of those networks that continue yeah. to run the same 17 <laughs> shows over and over again right right I, you know that's why i blame uh hbo back in the day for me seeing the indiana jones and the last crusade more than any other film probably in hey, history because good. it was on 17 times a day Good one. I think uh, The Saint with Val Kilmer was one of those. I watched that over and over again because Showtime never put anything else on TV. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But again, you know, uh, just because we watch it doesn't mean we like it. 
<laughs> but we like this one. We like this one a lot. But uh, yeah, I think again, getting back to favorite thing transformation. I mean, the the big mega Blair monster at the end. That's just a conglomerate of all the things absorbed into one. Is is also a great you know uh, great iteration of the monster. But like you were saying with the the creature when Norris is changing, you know, into the the, the, the head crab. You know, uh, the the noise it makes, I think, you know, you touched on something because it's something otherworldly. In a way, it's when it screams, when it has that reverb that you were talking about, I think it's almost where it's, you know, everything and nothing at the same time. It's everything that it had ever been. That's why it has that reverb. It's, you know, it's dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of different creatures and entities all at the same time. Because even with this movie, because of the legacy that it is, like there's different um, – uh, I mean there's tons of videos that dissect it and like look at different things and why and how and when and different stuff. So I know that every cell of the thing – I mean they explain it in the movie, but like with, with different interviews that John Carpenter did and then all these like fan fiction kind of things that kind of elaborate more on it because, again, it's addictive. Like you know, everyone, everyone loves this movie. But the, it was always every cell was its own identity, and it was everything and nothing at the same time. Like you just said, it, it could it could imitate the other things that it had always been, sort of like a. Uh, it was like it could never die. It was always living. It was always continuing in whatever life form pattern circle that it was in, and. Yeah, it's just insane of the sounds that they chose. And again, that could be an ex- executive decision that could have ruined the movie. Same thing with the edit that we were talking about. It's, you know, having picking a sound or a scream or a, a growl or whatever. I mean, it's the same thing with the the dog thing. Like the first time that we actually see yes. it, an amazing slap in the face because it doesn't it doesn't give you something that's kind of like. Uh, teasing you like letting you like your foot gets in the pool and you're like you know making sure that you're tempered into the the water and it's it's fine you can handle things in teases and little hints no it slams that whole thing in your face and it's like you're gonna watch this this gross slimy sound like the like the innards and i I know it was all like done in reverse it's obvious when you when you see different stuff of how it was filmed, but like all of the strings and like the intestines and all these weird things going and all those sounds, the sound is such an important thing and that it could have been ruined. Someone could have said, Oh, well, no, I don't like what you did. Let's, let's put it. I like this sound better. And it would be like a, I don't know, a rubber band slapping against a refrigerator. I don't know. Like it could just be like, well, it doesn't have the same impact, but yeah, I just, incredible it could have been like you know it's, it's, uh, to reference another carpenter movie halloween you know imagine like how something like that would have been changed if they would have had say for instance michael myers making any other noises than just the heavy breathing that he you know the breathing that he has yeah. like and maybe if they had had a version where like we're gonna have michael myers ask for his mommy or something like that at well, the very it's, end it's the darth vader thing you know, it's you could have had David Prowse ruin the movie. No disrespect to his voice, but you, it wouldn't have been Darth Vader without James Earl Jones. So, using that reference and metaphor or whatever, 
the the sounds yeah. had to be gross. They had to be disgusting, but you couldn't reference them. You know, you couldn't hear a it's like the Wilhelm scream. You couldn't have any of that. It had to be something completely like an amalgamation of these gross disgusting sounds or this weird kind of ethereal uh, you know uh, mongoloid growl or these sounds i was like yeah someone in the background while it was editing was like yep i like that sound go with version a or something but yeah we could have had an alternate reality with some i don't know stock sound of some foley person <laughs> just taking a lazy day off and was like yeah i don't you know I kept getting chewed out for making sounds that no one could ever reference and describe. It was like I could you couldn't put it on right. to be like, well, it was it sounded like I don't know, you know when you eat wet lettuce in your mouth and you don't ch- close your mouth, it kind of sounded like that. You know, whoever's writing the checks. <laughs> like, no, no, I don't want that. I'm not giving you money if you, you know, make the movie like that. So Well, like you said, uh, they use something like the Wilhelm scream, you know, which we all know as filmmakers <laughs> when we hear it. But yeah, that the, everything about this movie, you know, the way it is constructed with, uh, I wouldn't want to call it the paranoia, or, sorry, the way it is constructed with the paranoia, that once everybody starts realizing, you know, what the thing, you know, what the thing is, you know, like when Blair goes nuts and just, you know, when he's the one who first really finds out or at least comes to an understanding, you know, Wilford oh, Brimley Blair is Blair I mean, that was the whole thing. Like when you're watching it in the moment, you think he's, you know, you're, you're, you're you can't trust anyone. You, you're, you're part of the crew. You're there with them. And it's like, oh, well, Blair's destroying the whole thing. He's the thing. But no, he literally was the smartest person. He knew that. I mean, it's kind of like a, an ex machina uh, decision. Like he, for some reason, knew immediately that it was an alien that was going to take over the the planet it it worked for the story but it's like wow that was a large jump for someone in a night you know after your uh your uh, what was it whatever simulation on your computer running <laughs> yeah the, the galaga simulation but kind of like Ga- galaga just, type graphics it's just such a good uh, that's that's such a good part of it's not a character arc. What what am I trying to say? But it's it's like an action that needs to have consequences, but it's not what the audience thinks is happening. It's kind of subverting and changing the direction of the story. Because at that point, you're already – you know who you're watching on the screen isn't who they say they are. So you're already being more meticulous with what you're paying attention to, even if you don't know what you're looking for. But yeah, that was such right. a – great part of the story yeah when he destroys everything you know he he knows that none of them can ever leave there alive you know and he is willing to do whatever it takes when he destroys the chopper he destroys you know all the radio equipment he destroys everything that could either communicate them to the outside world or could get them to civilization i mean they are in antarctica there's really no civilization you know out there but it could always get to the next outpost i mean that's what happened the new the dog made it from the norwegian outpost to them somebody from their camp could make it to the next outpost you know outpost 31 you know he was trying to make it the uh the last stand and you know, I think uh, even though I think you referenced it good, you know, Blair is kind of the hero. And really, you know, like I know they're setting it up for McCready, R.J. McCready, you know, uh, Kurt Russell's character to be 
the ultimate, you know, the badass, the hero, the, the, you know, the alpha male that everybody's kind of following. But, you know, other than burning everything, McCready doesn't have an answer for everything or an answer for anything. You know, even when he comes up with the blood test at the end, you know, he only was going off of something that he had had uh, Blair and I think it was, what was the character? Bennings, not Bennings. Uh, darn it. Um, uh, oh, I'm having. Yeah, Fuchs. It was Fuchs. It was Fuchs. Sorry, I'm getting a couple of the characters mixed up. But when Fuchs had told him, you know, like, we should only eat from cans, you know, I went through Blair's notes. He said even one cell from this thing, you know, could infect somebody. I think, you know, he was taking a shot in the dark with that blood test at the end. Well, it's kind of funny because when I was watching this, I, I knew that you were going to do the Big Trouble in Little China episode and i kept thinking of every time that kurt russell in that movie just didn't know what was going on he was like well what's that what's going on tell me what you know he just didn't know what was what was happening it's kind of the same thing here you know at the beginning when the storm is coming and the characters they're looking to mccready to make a judgment call and you, you like that immediately puts the audience to trust him. You know, obviously he's the one of the first characters that you see in the movie, and you know, again, he's not super famous at that point. Like he he is known, but he's not super well known. But you have to have a protagonist, and he's the one the movie puts in front of it. And then the characters have to trust him because of his piloting skills and what's you know what his judgment call is. So you, we're forced to trust him. I think that's the the unreliable narrator thing that I love. Of the movie is telling you what to feel, but then at the end, especially with this kind of movie, it kind of leaves things open ended. But him not knowing what to do, everything he's he does in this movie is a relationship to someone else's decisions, someone else's knowledge. Yes, the, the scientists or whoever's doing something. He just I think he's the first person that people turn and look to to then give an answer. You know, he's, he's not the one that's actually making the call. It's just, he's the only one left to do something. But yeah, I think, I, I think that him destroying all the equipment was the, the real hero move, but you know, he went kind of crazy and started shooting everyone, but it's, it's the whole thing of like, what can you do? You know, you're only a few people now up against a cosmic deity for all we know. And yeah, you just can't do anything else. But Childs is the only other person that I would say is the main. I mean, even though it's obvious within yeah. the movie, but it's like any time that McCready is in trouble, he's yelling for Childs. It's like he is his second. It's like he's his quartermaster or something. Like that's right. That second in command. So the he's movie, the, he's the beta, so to speak. Yeah, like the, I mean, the movie is telling you how to feel, and I think that that works in its favor because, at, you know, the third act of the movie, you're kind of left, you're being force-fed this information, and God, even now with knowing the edit is narrating everything, it's like making it more digestible. It's like, yes, I'm, I, I'm following the movie, I'm listening, I'm not stupid, I know what's going on, and having a narrator just, you know, shoving it down your throat. Right, yeah, they're like they're not like telling you everything, but they're showing you everything in a way. Like they're just whether or not your eyes are there to, or open at the moment to take everything in. 
it's just like you know when we have our ending which we will get to it here eventually i do want to save uh that that great end to the final act uh for for the very very end but you know it's again it's mccready and childs you know it's like even when uh they get to the blood test you know mccready tells them like you know you're going to take this test and he's like well you'll just have to kill me and he's like and mccready just walks up to him and levels the gun between his eyes and he's like i'll do it i mean it and, and childs is just like okay uh, I, I see you made your chest move you know your your move there i i i concede but uh yeah uh the, the the paranoia that it develops with everybody. I mean, when, you know, McCready gets left outside, I think it's Knowles that, that he ran up to his uh, his shack with him. And Knowles found the, the torn uh, shirt or pants yeah. or pajama pants. And then cut the line that way whatever. he couldn't find his way back. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, I cut him on the line on the way back so he couldn't find his him on his way back. Everybody is, of course, even though McCready is their boy, they're turned against him because he may or may not be infected. This thing is so good because it's, again, like, just to say, for instance, if this was, you know, us on a movie set, we've been together. It's an enclosed kind of thing. You know, you have your own little community there for a few days or a week or two. And if something like this was happening, you know, we're all friends. We're family, in a manner of speaking. You know, who do you trust when it's something that could be anybody yeah and that also helps with how the movie opens because you don't know how long these people know each other i mean the way they talk to each other like the characters obviously there's a rapport they know some history about people but you don't you only kind of know about how long they've been there this year though i mean you don't know how many previous times that they've went to to have this research station and how long they kind of have a history together so it's really open-ended it's very smart to kind of have a, a very vague opening. That way we have to imagine, it was like, well, well, you know, how long did Palmer know Knowles? Or, you know, how how long was Childs and McCready like buddy-buddy? And that kind of like emphasizes the tension and how much it grows. It's like, then you start imagining your own friendships. Just like you said, yeah, if you're if you're putting this on top of like a template for another situation that you may be in, you you start like filling in the gaps with your own imagination, and that's the whole that's the whole thing that makes it so much fun with how it's left open ended with so many of the the questions that were intentional that John Carpenter didn't explain. It's kind of like the stuff from Session Nine where it's just it's like hey you figure it out. There's, Great movie. There's, there's there's no ending that's wrong. You know you can make up whatever you want. So. A great movie, though, that you just mentioned, Session 9. That's another good one. That's a really good well, that's my one that plays off of Paranoia. Because a director just doesn't want... It, it does it on purpose to not give an ending. Like, obviously there's an ending, but there's so many weird things done on purpose that it's like, well, I'm, I'm making a movie for a viewer, an audience. It's like, it's like that third-person perspective, knowing what you're doing is going to be some sort of experience for someone else and i i really like that i mean i obviously that goes with ego and per as someone who thinks that they're you know that they are on a pedestal which i'm sure that john carpenter felt at the moment making this but again every, he still had a really good reputation around this time of his his career you know he didn't have that uh, i guess that cloud over doing movie after movie and 
having that kind of reputation of like, oh, well, you know, don't, you know, don't give him a, a second opinion or, you know, don't, don't say anything that he's, you know, don't tell him a suggestion or a, any kind of feedback. You know, you don't want to, you want to make sure that you work tomorrow and stuff, but right. I, I, like, <laughs> right. I like those kind of directors. Yeah. I think this is definitely, you know, and to think this was only a couple of years you know, a couple of short years, three years after making Halloween, you know, t- two years after the fall, one year after Escape from New York. And he had such a, you know, Again, not busy. many directors. Yeah, he was busy. Yeah. In like, the early back, to mid 80s. I think that's why he's so he's so renowned. It's just like with. um Oh, I had his name on my tip of my tongue, but it's like back to back to back. It's like you're a moneymaker. Like a lot of directors don't get that kind of. Uh, luck. I mean, it is luck. I mean, you, you never know. You could have an amazing script in your hands, and you have reputation. You get the money, you get the paycheck you want, but then the edit doesn't work out, and it bombs. Or, you, you know, some something happens, and your lead that you were banking on isn't there, and you, you know, well, there's your movie. You know, your your second string actor didn't work out, and right, I, right. You, you just got really lucky. But I mean, he is still super talented. I mean, I'm in no way gonna bad mouth john carpenter but he he got really lucky with oh yeah i mean he had several there's in a row you know what i mean just one after another i mean even after this you know this was not successful for him in the beginning he still followed it up with christine you know and then Starman, and i think was it uh prince of darkness or big trouble little china came next you know still great film after great film again maybe all of them weren't you know, uh, financially successful. But I think, you know, that's unfortunately where a lot of us as artists tend to go with things. You know, they might have felt the good. They might have been uh, fulfilling of a of a project, whether you're a musician or an actor or straight up, you know, artist. You know, they might be fulfilling, but were they successful? And I think we measure our success in terms of financial. You know, did it sell well? Did it, you know, sell a million copies at the video store? Did was it number one on this, you know, yeah. on the charts, the release? And you know, that's unfortunate that we do that because, still, I mean, you know, uh, to, to think that you know a movie like The Thing is con- was probably at the time considered a blemish on his career. It's just amazing to me to think of a movie that at least I, you know, consider to be a perfect film. Yeah. Could, you and know even, what I mean? Even like his legacy, like like we've been to conventions. A lot of people that we are around go to those uh, horror community guided kind of things where everyone is either involved in those movies, they, they cosplay, they LARP, they do, they do whatever. You could have one – directly involved with just John Carpenter movies and it would be ridiculously popular. It would be, it, there would be no, um, a waste of time. Like, you know, someone, a group of people would just be like, Oh yeah, I'm down for that. Totally. You know, $400 for a weekend. Sure. I'll, I'll pay that money. It's just, you know, it, it lends, it lends credence to the things that he did. And again, he's just, I think he just got really lucky and he, he banked on the right things and he, he did the work. And he just kept yep. he kept getting those really good things. And whoever his agent was or if he did stuff on his own and he said no to some things. Imagine what he said no to. I don't think I've ever really looked into some of the movies that he chose not to do. But I always like looking into like actors who 
who turned down a role or maybe got declined for wanting to be in something. And it, it could have completely changed history. It could have like been, I don't know, imagine uh, John Carpenter getting a, a Wes Craven movie if there was a different history and they offered him to do something or I don't know. Like imagine John Carpenter doing Scream. Oh God! Yeah, I might actually like the film then. That's a completely different (laughs) thing. Sorry, I've I've sideswiped the podcast again. Well, you know there are certain movies that I know that he did turn down. That you know over the years he or or movies that he was supposed to make that ended up not happening. He was supposed to uh, direct uh, Firestarter, Stephen King's Firestarter, and it never happened. He was chosen to direct the Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. Oh, and instead God. decided decided so to do that didn't happen. Yeah, I'm decided, I'm glad he decided to do Big Trouble in Little China, but he also turned down the chance of. I mean, a couple that I wrote down here: uh, Fatal Attraction, which I can't imagine him doing. Top Gun was another <laughs> one, and he was offered the chance to direct uh, Zombieland. You know, and, and well, uh, among other things, that one's okay. But Top Gun, wow, was that was that Brad Bird? Is that who directed that? Uh, no, no, that was uh, Tony Scott, I believe. Oh, yeah. Sorry. My bad. Yep. Tony Scott. Sorry. Or, or was, it, was it Ridley Scott or Tony Scott? I think it was Tony Scott. I think it was Tony, yeah. But, you know, I, I'm sure there's probably a multitude of other movies that he was offered that he didn't uh, end up directing. But, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine him directing something like uh, like what it would have been like for him to direct something like, you know, Fatal Attraction or The Golden Child. Or you know, he I think he was also pegged to do uh oh what was that Thomas Jane movie that came out? Mutant Chronicles. Which oh, was wow. you know a decent film and I think would have been right up his alley, but I'm you know, just kind Never of know. glad that I mean, it didn't work be, out that would way. Would it be the good mood John Carpenter or the bad mood John Carpenter? Like he, there's different there's different things if he did it for <laughs> the paycheck or if he did it for the creative control and like, you know, really wanted to do it. Anyway, the the one thing I have down on here, just to get back onto the movie, um, I've always been fascinated with the dogs that were actually on set. These are super well trained dogs. Like I, again, going back into like uh, child mode, I was so distraught with the dog thing and like how that happened and just like hearing the sounds of those animals, especially like watching it now and like the the main dog getting hit with like that slime thing that was like shooting out at him i was like man that's oh, a, i bet that was a terrible day on set of just being mean to a dog but it makes my heart sink because i hate seeing any kind of animal cruelty uh in horror movies you can do whatever you want to people all day long oh yeah <laughs> but animals it just makes my heart sink and by the way i made a note about the dog the dog's name was jed and yep. he lived 18 years he died in 1995 I had that written down too. I was, I was about to get into it, but yeah, I mean that's one of those uh, the behind the scenes things and the the stuff that is so cool to learn that you know that dog was insanely well mannered and you know it actually was friends with the Clark character. I can't remember his name, uh, Richard Mauser. There you go. Um, but it just you adds. See. You could see, like, that was one of the most, like, the heartbreaking scenes when Blair, you know, when they send, uh, when Blair's going nuts and he's got windows kind of held captive and he's shooting at everybody. And Childs tells everybody, he's like, yeah, he smashed up the chopper and he's killed the rest of the dogs. Yeah. And then yeah, Clark. Clark's favorite you know, character. 
I mean, everyone loves Kurt Russell. I, I mean, I, there's no there's no getting around. McCready's a cool dude, but Clark, if that was, he would be my favorite character. There's he didn't do anything wrong. Like is you know, a lot of the characters had some really good like uh, moral decisions or instincts or whatever. But I, but you don't know when Clark changed. You know, there's always that theory that Clark was already susceptible at before the dog thing before the thing actually changed because they were alone for an hour or whatever but yeah man that's such a hard i mean give a shit what happens to the rest of the humans but the dog stuff was right that's where you get the man tears and stuff it's uh when they show when they show the i mean you know they created what uh, our buddy tom commissar likes to call a real bozo no-no when they show the dogs being killed, yeah, but not when they don't being shot. We have the one that gets shot, the one that gets covered in the slime and the tentacles, but then the aftermath of Blair with one of them with their head cut off on the chopping block. You can feel that it's a tangible sadness within Clark. Well, you know, that's a, an interesting shot too, because I don't know if you really, because that's a really like hard part in the movie because there's a lot of kinetic energy before clark goes to see the aftermath of what he did but that was a really really unique shot to slow down the movie's pacing because it was a very static um shot of just the dog right in front of the camera and then having the only movement be clark i thought that was really really smart to like calm down the the viewer to i mean obviously it's horrifying it's obviously a gut-wrenching part of it too because i mean obviously most of the dogs were already infected i mean i'm sure that all of them were but man was that harsh but it it you know the movie is again telling you what to do it's it's like showing you piece by piece you can calm down now you know you, you we, we just got through bashing up a lot of electronics and ripping shit out of the helicopter and stuff but you're okay now you, you can calm down but now we're going to show you this and completely knock the wind out of you. Pretty you know, much. <laughs> now, the, there's another part of the movie that I don't necessarily have a problem with, but I've always, uh, it's one of the scenes I always ask uh, other people, like minded people, you know, like yourself, about. There's one death that completely happens, or at least we think completely happens off screen. And I've always wondered what, uh, what everybody thinks about it is Nulls. Nulls is the one character. Everybody is at the end. The The camp is blown half the hell. Almost everybody is dead. It's down to Nulls, uh, Gary, and Childs is missing. But so it's Nulls, Gary, and McCready. And Nulls just disappears. Do you think Blair got to him and killed him and assimilated him into the thing? Or what do you think happened to Nulls? Well, the, that was one thing that I always was curious of as well. Because, I mean, most of the movie always had a very good sense of i mean it was always open-ended but it it kind of told you what happened to some of the characters if it didn't show it kind of the same with same with fuchs of like incinerating himself yes is that very unlikely why did he burn immediately like that looked like really quick incineration like that you know the, yeah practical but i do remember the, the that was thing. not that was not a fire that had been burning for a long time that was exactly <laughs> that, like, that was, that was you know. ridiculous but right. i do remember uh a few years ago 
because I got really, really addicted to a lot of the, like the forensic YouTube creators that like were dissecting it really really thoroughly and there's a lot of really good ones out there if you're really curious if, if anyone's you know interested in that when you're listening to this there's a few of them that just it, number one it goes into the film theory and how well the movie was constructed but also like why certain things happen and like who was the thing at this certain time and you know blah blah, blah. but i do remember there was a situation where the nulls kind of loophole or, or gap whatever pitfall whatever you want to say was explained and it was basically he uh, he had the the broken leg and he was it, it's like he committed suicide as either he stabbed himself in the neck or something happened i don't remember fully though what it what it did though but it was like very similar to how gary died i do remember that Oh, okay, okay. I might have to look into some of those. I have watched several YouTube videos based on on the thing and different film theories of who was the thing and when they were and what the ending means, but I've never I, really found one that uh, that delved into the Nulls thing, so I'll have to dig a little deeper on that. Yeah, I mean, even though it's impractical of what Fuchs did, I, I think that Nulls and Fuchs committed suicide. I will, I mean, if if you if you don't agree, you can message me. I will love to dissect this movie with someone at a later date at any time, you know, until I die. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think those two things happened where they, they took it into their own hands. Yes, I believe so too. And now like, this is the point where I just, I'm going to, I want to discuss though, what I consider to be the, the one fault of the movie at least from my point of view. I still consider it it's about as perfect as a film as you can get. You know, so when I call it a perfect film, you know, I'm 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 a human being. I fully realize there's faults and mistakes in everything. Well before you but, say you that you know Bill, I will contest. I love this movie one hundred percent. It is not a perfect movie, but it's pretty close. I enjoy it yeah. to to ignore some of its um the things I don't like about it. But continue. Right. You know, I mean, when I say perfect, I mean, I, I'm using the term loosely because there is nothing that's perfect, but it's about as perfect as you can get or, or as close to that ideal of being perfect. But my main uh, issue is with Blair. I put Blair in the tool shed. I want to know how long he was supposed to be in this tool shed and dug that tunnel to underneath <laughs> the tool shed and built that goddamn spaceship. Yeah. That's what I wanted. To do. That's uh, like the, the one imperfect thing, the one, the big kahuna. I'm just like, like, you know, if he had been down there for months, then I could have bought it, but it had to have been mere days, you know, yeah. within the, the construct, the thing I'm going to say that, you know, they never really say, well, you know, this movie starts on the 13th and it ends on the 17th, but I'm going to imagine that it was over the course of a couple of days. Yeah. I, th I think, from some of the stuff that I've read, I, I think it happens over probably five days, maybe less than that. But uh, yeah, when shit hits the fan, there's not really, there's not really anything that shows you that longer time happens because almost everything is uh, relative to the next scene. Like I, 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 I complimented the editing of the movie, but I, I don't like how many fade to blacks there are because it's, it's kind of counterintuitive 
of the whole purpose of the film with the pace of it of what it's going when you fade to black in the middle of a scene especially after something that's like really aggressive on your senses like it's something that you know obviously a monster or a death or something it makes you think that more time is passing like it's day yes. to night or like a sunset to sunrise kind of thing. Doesn't mean that that's what they meant, but I just, why use that as your transition when, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of different reasons why they maybe did that, but the, the, the Blair thing, I think is the only part of the movie. I mean, yes, it's a monster movie from space, whatever. There's a lot of stuff there that you're suspending disbelief already, but absolutely, there is no way he by himself, even if he was the thing, we don't have any evidence that the thing can dig or that can – I mean we don't, we don't even ever see it with fully functioning hands. Like it's always something else. It's always deformed into another creature. We kind of right. never see what the thing looks like by itself or even if it's capable of doing that, even if it even has a, a default – look but yeah i think that at that part of the movie you kind of have to look at yourself and go i'm already invested <laughs> there's eight <laughs> minutes left in the movie uh do i really give a shit about you know giving giving it that much hell but absolutely there's no way that he did that in a weekend or without any tools because they didn't give him anything they gave him rope which is ridiculous, but they didn't give him uh, yeah. shovels or a heater, or there's no way that he could have gotten through that. But again, again, you don't know yeah. what the thing is capable of. I mean, sure, there's there's different things that you could say because you don't know. You know, the unknown is kind of the whole reason you, that it's plausible because we don't, for certain, know that he couldn't have dug through that and then immediately pieced together this. It's so stupid. It's you have to build the whole area first, and then you start. Where did he get all the equipment from? Like it just, even <laughs> right. if it, even if it was the thing, the going back and forth, the relay race that he had to do without being seen ever, and then to find enough equipment to build the thing. I don't know. It's just so stupid. I agree. That's it's silly. <laughs> that's the only thing I don't really like. But again, it doesn't ruin the movie. It doesn't. I mean, obviously, it's. <sighs> It's ridiculous, but it doesn't it doesn't kill the vibe. Like uh, it doesn't hinder on that very long. I do like that. I mean, the the discovery it kind of feels like it's it's rushed. Th them going through it and talking about it, and then just nonchalantly going, "Well, I guess he built a spaceship." It's like really, like you're not even going to comment on it more than a few sentences, but, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But, but then you, you kind of forget about it. I think that it benefits from having it at the finale because with the Blair thing and the Molotovs and as much action and the tremors kind of thing where it goes through the bottom of the ice and, and pops up all the, the wood, really cool scenes. I think it benefits from having something that's such a cool ending that you kind of forget of what you were just questioning. You know, your right, raised right. eyebrow a minute ago. So I, I think it... I think it kind of balances out. Yeah, it does balance out, and it doesn't make me enjoy the the movie any less. But that's the one big question I always have: is like, where did he find the time? Where did he get the you know the the the, the pieces and everything? And was, when they checked on him, he was always there. He was always ready to answer right. their calls and be like, "Can I come in now? I'm fine. I promise, I'm good now." 
it was yeah. not like, <laughs> like where is he well i mean that's kind of the thing too they don't always show where everyone is at the same time so you don't really know how much time has passed but again it's literal it's like 72 hours there's no way <laughs> that anyone <laughs> right. whatever we'll stop we'll stop hammering well, uh, it, it's it's like you said though you know we don't know what the thing is and how capable it is so that's why you just gotta i guess suspend your disbelief just a little bit also there's a there's a there's a theory that i i don't know if you've actually um if you've ever read or if, if you've seen it but it's 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 an interesting little question mark that the thing wasn't the one who created the spaceship at the beginning of the movie that the thing was inhabiting another creature that was the inventor or the orchestrator of that technology and they crash landed on our planet in their travel so it maybe was trying to maybe imitate the technology that maybe they had some memories of of the other creatures that they maybe eat or ate uh, and formed Uh into but that's something I like that it, it makes it more unknown because you think at the beginning of the movie, it's like, Oh, well I, I got a flat tire. I'm, I'm crashing on this planet, but I think that it helps build more of the story that it couldn't fly the aircraft because it wasn't the actual thing that invented it. It was just another creature that it consumed and transformed into, but eventually, I don't know, ran out of gas, you know, for going right. around. Milky Way or something, but I like that theory as well. On top of everything, I've never heard that theory. I I I like that one though. That would explain quite a bit. But uh, yeah, I've heard so many theories that I forgot. I have forgotten more more of the theories than I can actually even remember to tell the truth. I know the one of the theories uh, that I read was that Clark was still the thing but the i i that clark was the original one that got turned but i always had a problem with that because of the blood test that they do at the end i couldn't figure you know i couldn't for the life of me figure out why they people would adhere to that theory that yeah if if his blood is the only one that didn't you know his blood didn't react uh any more than anybody else's so i just that's one I don't buy. That's one I definitely don't buy into. Yeah. The one, the one that I actually really like is the one that I believe for such a long period of time was – you, you kind of have to think about it where if one cell is enough to change a person, like how long does it take? Or do you have a kind of – the majority rules, like pirate law inside the body where if like 51% of you is changed, then you're, then you're the thing? You know, it, maybe you have some sort of humanity left in you, and it just takes longer if you just maybe uh, just get like a drop of something in you. But I liked the theory of when the beginning of the movie, when the dog is running towards the people, when okay. Vinny yeah. gets shot in the leg and he goes down, he takes a drink of the whiskey which is a very proponent prop in the whole movie like those bottles are everywhere it's it's attached to mcgreedy's hit basically and it's it's a a linchpin basically to the end of the movie but the dog licks him in the face 
before that happens. And then he drinks from the whiskey that was already opened. And that could be kind of dispersing and whoever drank after him and these, these different things where it's like, well, what's going on? Was he the first one infected or was it really Norris? Was this, this the silhouette in his bedroom and the dog like went in and it faded to black? So it's yes. like I always liked that theory, but then it kind of goes out the window because Bennings is then with uh, Windows and he gets assimilated from uh, the oh, other. Yeah, day. that's right. That's right. But again, there's nothing set in stone. There's no rules. There's no laws of what's going on. So I always still like thinking that from the beginning of the movie, they're already infected. That dog licked Benning's face as soon as he ran up to him and be like, please save me from this weird Norwegian shooting at me. And then he <laughs> contaminates the whiskey. And it's kind of the thing where, like, did McCready continue drinking from that bottle? And, like, was he always infected, but it just was a small amount? And it didn't... I don't know. There's, there's so many questions of, like... Again, it's it leaves it up to us to, like, talk about it 40 years later. And that's... That's what I love about it. It has created this dialogue, you know, where guys like ourselves, you know, people like ourselves, filmmakers and whatnot, can still be discussing it at length 40 years later. Now, I, I think we might as well go ahead and get into the big kahuna, uh, the ending of this film. Oh, yeah. You go first. Now, I got, I, I got a theory. My theory is this. And I've seen many YouTube videos. I've seen many behind-the-scenes things. I've heard, you know, Kurt Russell himself discuss it. I've heard Keith David discuss it, John Carpenter discuss it, and I've come up with my own theory. At the end of the movie, when it's just Childs and McCready, they're only ones left. They bomb the entire Outpost 31. Everything is burning around them. And, you know, McCready thinks he's the only one left, and, and there's Childs. And Childs kind of gives that weak-ass excuse that he saw Blair out in the snow, went after him, got lost in the storm, and just happened to make it back. My, my theory is this, and I've had it explained to me bo both ways, but I think in the end, if anybody is the thing, and now it is possible in the end, that neither one of them are the thing. I think we can rule out that uh, we can rule out the the factor that both of them are the thing because otherwise the dialogue between them makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, at least that's in my opinion. If I had to make a choice in the end, and it's not because I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan and I lean towards the McCready side of the camp, but when they're there talking and McCready offers them the bottle of booze, the bottle of scotch, and Childs takes it and he drinks from it. In that scene between the two of them, you can clearly see McCready's breath in the air, in the night air. What, and if you play it back, for about 90% of that scene, you do not see any of Childs' breath. I think they filmed it in such a way to subliminally tell us, even though they may never come right out and say it, you know? I think Childs is the thing and McCready is human. And basically in the end, if even if um, McCready is not going to be assimilated, they're both going to freeze. So in the end, does it really matter who the thing is? You know, because it's, he didn't succeed. You know, if he would have succeeded, then he would have been the only one left. But with Childs there, that makes two of them. One of them 
to me, one of them has to be the thing. And my opinion is that Childs is the creature. Okay. So there's a few theories with the ending as much uh, video stuff that I've watched dissections. There's a few theories of what makes uh, the, the ending kind of up and down with where it, you can't really decide what's going on. So number one, just to address the breath thing, Childs does have visible breath nearly at the end of their dialogue. I wanted yes, to make a little bit, see, yes. just a little bit. I think it's the lighting. I think they they on purpose put more warm light onto McReady, or at least there was the direction of because he's facing the fire and Childs is facing away from it. I don't know if it's really the lighting, but the the breath thing is is funny. I like it because it is very apparent with the placement of their bodies, but you can see breath later uh, in the conversation with Childs. The second yeah. thing is that's why I said like it, it, it's like ninety percent of the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you're not paying attention, you could obviously go, "Oh, well, well he doesn't need to breathe." It's the whole like zombie underwater yeah. thing. Um, the second like really neat thing is there's a a light effect, sort of like how Blade Runner did their um, uh, what are they called? The replicants. Repl- replicants. Yeah. Where. There is kind of a little halo in some of the people who are the thing, and that's kind of been dissected where it was done on purpose, but the continuity failed. So there's a few parts of the movie where the eyes of the thing for the the person who it's inhabiting, it doesn't actually do that little halo effect where it shows kind of a little flicker of light. So it's kind of ruined because of the continuity of them making the film. The, The thing that I love of the number one uh, comment that I see a lot of people talk about the ending is the kerosene in the, in the Molotov cocktails. I don't know where that came from because it didn't show them filling the liquor bottles with kerosene liquor. Alcohol is already flammable. There's no reason for them to replace it. So that the whole theory of Kurt Russell, Oh, that the the bottle was, was, that was just filled right, with kerosene right. with um, with another um, uh, accelerant, but there's just there's a lot of people that I've seen or blogs and just you know these websites are just like oh well that's it you know he was he was gonna commit suicide and just drink this whatever and just die and then that's why he smiled and chuckled a little bit when he gave Childs that that bottle and he just swigged it and I was like where where did kerosene come from that none of none of that was. Yeah. Ever- the movie like it literally it's just scotch scotch it, 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 you can throw it on fire that's why we're throwing molotovs so i don't know where that came from the yeah, problem is, I, I don't buy into that theory the problem with this is there is an alternate version of an ending that i can't remember i was trying to look for it but there was a a different version that john carpenter was going to make and he had both of them survive and they were going to be on a helicopter and neither one of them were infected. They they did a test as an alternate ending, uh, and they they both proved that like none of the like they weren't infected at all. And it kind of, I wish I could find it, but it's, it's one of those things where am I really remembering it by fact or am I making this up? But I think that that was the real thing that both of them were human by design from the person who did the movie 
but that kind of leaves all the fun out of it. You know, it, it, technically, if it's an alternate ending, it's not canon. So that doesn't matter. If it's not in the movie, it's, it doesn't matter. Right? Like, it's if it's not in it, right. it's not a whole finished product. The, the other part of it that I like is, did you ever watch the, the 2011 sequel? Yes. Yes, the, pre, the prequel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I knew what you meant. So, yeah. Uh, doesn't matter if you liked it or not. I enjoyed it. I just hate that they did they did more CGI than real practical effects. But the number one thing with that is the thing cannot reproduce material that is not that's man made. It, it can only do organic material. Um, yeah, that's what, yep. The the part of why they did that in the in the prequel was sort of a creative callback to Childs because he had an earring and he wore the earring the entire time he had it at the ending so again you have all of these different things culminating with who is who and what is what is really what so i don't know i can't i didn't make the movie again i'm just another person who's seen it a bunch of times there's a lot of people who've written blogs and feel like they're experts i don't know i know what john carpenter may have put in an interview I've heard Kurt Russell talk about it, um, but we don't really know. I personally like thinking that Childs was telling the truth, and for whatever reason, because Blair was making a fucking spaceship in 24 hours, uh, he maybe could, you know, be skirtling around. Uh, that's not a word. Skirtling, uh, scuttling around. <laughs> scuttling. <laughs> um, I, I knew what you said, but I knew what you meant, sir. <laughs> but I I like thinking that M- McCready maybe was what I just said. Like maybe he was infected a little bit at the beginning because he drank out of the bottle that Bennings was drinking out of. Maybe he is the thing. Maybe both of them are, but maybe it's like a lower percentage and they're not fully transformed yet. I don't know. I, I think ultimately it's more entertaining having it be so open-ended. It pisses you off. It makes me mad. I wish like I like having like a clear cut. This is what it is. But with so many different gaps within the story, you don't know where he is. It's the whole other thing of why is he wearing a different jacket? That's the whole other. The wardrobe in the movie is such a uh, important part of it too. Because before the last scene that you see Childs in, he's looking out the window in that weird circular room. And the jacket that he's wearing in the finale is hanging up on the wall behind him. We know that the thing has to rip through the clothes to actually consume the person. So he's wearing a gray jacket in the scene that we see in the last time before the finale. And then he's wearing a blue jacket when he walks up on Kurt Russell, all creepy. And it's just like, why'd you change your jacket? You know, it's, (laughs) but it, it right. doesn't tell you. It, it on purpose doesn't tell you what's going on. So I don't know. I mean, if if you were hoping for us to, you know, give you an answer, I'm I'm sorry. We don't we don't know what the ending means, but we have theories. Yeah, we only got theories, and you know, it, I I think it's harking it back to another movie that has like a multitude of theories around it. Uh, Pulp Fiction, like what's in the briefcase. You know what I mean? I love hearing the theories on that. I think some of them are very viable and some of them are utter fucking ridiculousness. But I feel like, you know, nobody is really right and nobody is really wrong. Because if it works for you and it makes sense in your mind, who's to tell you that 
hell, you know, that whoever is the thing, it could be neither of them, could be both of them. That, that's the one theory that I don't adhere to. I don't think it could be both of them because then otherwise the entire discussion at the end and the interchange between the two of them does not make sense. Exactly. But, but it could be either one of and- them. There's another theory that I came up with this, uh, not the last time I watched it, but I watched it uh, right before this. We do a full month of horror, you know, uh, Patty and I do, where we watch at least one horror movie per day for the month of, ho- for the month of uh, October for Halloween. And I kind of noticed something that I guess I just never picked up on before. And you tell me if you've ever like picked up on this. When they take Blair in, into the shed and, you know, they kind of dope him up with some morphine and everything... And McCready stays behind, right? And they have that little discussion where Blair says, I don't know who to trust. McCready picks up the bottle of vodka that's on the table in front of him, takes a swig from it, screws the bottle cap back on, and, and sets it And it puts down. it right in front of him. Yeah, it puts it in frame. That's the whole thing. The movie does things on purpose. Like, nothing is there. Mm-hmm. It, it, even the drums that's in the hallway, I remember watching some behind the scenes, and it was like all those little... Uh, tubs, they're all put there on purpose. The whole thing was like John Carpenter was yelling at people for continuity of like, do not touch this, do not move this. I put it there for a reason. The prop designer yep. and the set designer know what I'm doing. Don't move this. Don't sit on it. Don't use it for break. Eat somewhere else or, you know, whatever. But like, yeah, that was a on purpose thing where he put it in the frame and the the shot lasted for him to look at it. That's why I keep thinking that there's a certain point I just don't know because it's it's the whole why does McCready continue to fight? And I keep thinking too it's it's a stupid theory. It doesn't make any sense, but when the thing separates from itself, do you ever feel like there's a competition? Like the thing doesn't have to be on its own side. It doesn't have to be like an uh, an asexual connected thing between different bodies. It could be fighting itself wanting to be it's kind of like the symbiote thing from venom like they're all the same species yes. they're all the same thing but they have some sort of complex where they want to be the one to actually take over the planet or to infect this person so again you're we're kind of like building upon nothing you know we're making like lego castles out of thin air but i like continuing <laughs> to think of, of the thing when it separates it maybe has a mind of its own. I mean, I would if you if you think about it of like a, a an organism on our planet. Again, this is an alien. We don't know how how it works, but if you if you were thinking of a creature on this planet that went through what it does and it has to it has to assimilate and then it has the memories, it has the the dexterity, the uh, the motion. It learns how to walk. It it knows how to speak. The languages. The all the different things it would be psychotic it would be literally a schizophrenic organism that probably doesn't know what's going on so i really do think that if we continue to go down this rabbit hole in alice in wonderland that maybe it it is fighting itself and it could be mccready is trying to infect other people but maybe him throwing molotovs and destroying it is because he doesn't like the other thing that's disconnected from his body. I don't know. Again, again, I'm completely just making up shit. 
Well, you know, but it might be like a big brother syndrome, but it's like, yeah, we're of the same blood, but, it, uh, you know, just because I, uh, you know, we're related doesn't mean I have to like you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it, it, uh, it imitates uh, a Spartan, and it just says, this is Antarctica, and it kicks him off the, the cliff. That's what it is. Like. <laughs> but I, I, also, I also like the sad part that maybe when it does fade to black, they are both human, and, like... Childs just lights them both up, or he kills uh, McCready with you know just it's that whole sad part of the thing of like well maybe they really are human and they win but the ending fades to black you don't know what happens but then it, again it it's not it's not a cut ending it's not there's no resolution it's it does yeah, that I on mean purpose. Uh, like uh well, like Childs in his last moment says, you know what, you know how do we how do we make it? And uh, McCready just stares at him for a moment and says, you know, maybe we shouldn't. And that's the the bleakness of it, you know. Yeah, maybe they were both human after all, and, and they they won, but that doesn't mean they're going to live because you know how do you and, bri- how do you survive those elements? <laughs> and that's what I love thinking that McCready is infected because he just he knows that he can if he if he's not going to be killed by childs that he'll just freeze and that's fine whoever finds them they can be the next infected but yeah i'm glad you brought up the damn the the bottle in front of blair because there was no reason for him to stay behind they were they were quarantining him in that cabin for a reason but for some reason you wanted to have a heart to heart with this dude who just destroyed and shot people and it's this weird vibe where it changes the camera angle and it points it and it's in frame and he yeah he puts it down you don't see what he does with the bottle but that's why i'm curious of the edit that you watched because you said that they use different angles and it made me think that maybe there were different shots planned for what we now know is like the actual canon version of the thing that maybe there were other specifically put shots in the movie, but maybe they changed them. And that that's why it's so important. I, I think that that's why this movie is so uh, favorited because the attention to detail, like it shows you that you should pay attention to every frame. You should pay attention to when you cut, when you don't cut the types of transitions that you use, uh, why you should have an ending, why you shouldn't, you know, put more emphasis on what characters do, what they say, what they don't say. Like you were saying, when when Blair was going through it, and in the version that you were watching, like the the TV, it was a narration. It wasn't any silence. It wasn't letting the the scene speak for itself. But in the yeah. retail version or the you know the canon version that doesn't have that narration, it's just that really bleak soundtrack and it's it's making you read because it doesn't tell you anything you have to read that really awful small computer font and you're just like <laughs> right oh. it, it you know it brings you into the whole the whole thing yourself you're part of the journey you're trying to figure it out as well it does leave you a little perturbed at the end at least for me it just always makes me go what if but that being said I think we ought to go ahead and go into our final thoughts and review and our and rating on this sucker. And 
I got a feeling I know where you're going to come in at it. I got a prediction. So, so we'll, much like um, our prediction with who's the thing at the end, what is your final thoughts on the thing and a rating on a scale from 1 to 10? Well, because I mentioned it, I just want to whoever whoever is listening to this who didn't want to watch the prequel, the one that came out in 2011, give it a chance. It is not a terrible movie. It actually grows the mythology of this movie. It helps. It puts a lot of good parts of the story, and the people who made it really do love the original. So please don't think that it was like a terrible movie to be a terrible movie, a cash grab, whatever. Yes, the CGI was awful, but you know, whatever. Um, I I don't think that I will ever not enjoy the thing. Every time I've watched it, every time that I've brought it up to at least have some people watch it for like a movie night or something, I, I keep it on my phone at all times. I think I think a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, I got a, uh, a digital version of it, and I have it on my phone, and I've had it on a previous version too, and I think – it is a staple thing that if I if I just need to zone out, if I need to watch something that it helps me uh, uh, just separate my life for a moment. This is what a good movie to like separate. Oh, I'm having a really bad day. Let me watch Palmer get you know transformed and have have him smash windows. <laughs> but like, right? I let's see Norris lose his head. You know? Yeah. And and that's the whole thing too. Usually with um, well, I don't want to say usually. In my opinion, I think a lot of really grotesque movies, they kind of have a one-and-done feel where when you watch it, you kind of like, well, okay, well, I've seen it. I know the story. I don't really need to watch that again. I don't have that feeling for the thing. I, I, I think it's got a really good rewatch uh, ability. And again, I can't say it's a perfect movie. I I don't like... The suspension of disbelief with the damn airship uh, uh, aircraft being built underneath the ice, even though that's being petty. And I just don't like the transitions. I hate the fade to black. They didn't – I don't know why they chose that. But again, that's being so nitpicky. I'll give it, I'll give it a 9 out of 10. But that is a very, very loving, near-perfect movie where you couldn't have chose a better cast. John Carpenter was at his – prime i would say pre-prime because this i mean he was getting really good really good stories and he was getting work he was excited and having a talented 22 year old of rob botine and the team behind the special effects the movie would never have been as impactful four decades later if it wasn't for the special effects and I, I really do think the amount of people that this movie inspired to make movies, to make comics, to make graphic novels, whatever, is immeasurable. So I, I definitely think that this is one of those movies that you put in like to – what is it? The um, the uh, Congress Film Historical Society? What was it called? Where they, they Oh, the were, Library of Congress? Yeah. Uh, it's called something, but it's like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for movies or whatever. Uh, I, I'm forgetting what the hell it's called it's right now, but but absolutely, I, I'm very glad this movie exists in the format that it does. I'm glad that the yeah TV version that you described, the horrible monster, that's the thing. That's you know, it's an, it's the imposter of what it's <laughs> to, uh, is a piss poor yeah. imitation, right? 
And number one, I'm, I'm very yeah, uh, happy that you asked me to be a part of this episode. I, I'm very thankful that I can be so excited about talking about a movie that's, you know, this important. Uh, I agree with about 99.9% of everything you, you've said. Uh, it's, a, it's, you know, there's always a difference between a good film and a great film. And I'll touch base on the, the sequel, or not the sequel, but the prequel. It was a good film. It was a good film, amazingly crafted, to have a lot of things that harken back to this original. Well, not this original, because this is a remake, but, you know, but still, at the same time, you know, it, to harken back to the this 1982 version, you know, and it was made by a group of people that at least I feel, and I fall on probably on the side of the fence that a lot of people don't fall on, a lot of people did not like that movie. I think this, this is the difference. The John Carpenter's The Thing is a great movie. The prequel was just a good film. It was marred by some uneven performances and uh, the shoddy CGI. You know, the CGI was just a step backwards. And really, other than that, uh, the prequel is a good film. I, I really like it, and it doesn't damage the reputation of this film. It doesn't hurt it at all, and that's where I stand with that one. Uh, as far as this film is concerned, concerned there are very few films that i you know will give this sort of a rating to i i give it an i give it a full 10 i think it's as perfect as a film can be you know there is no such thing as an absolute perfect film you know i mean there's so many films that i love that i i have to realize is just are not perfect but they're as near perfection as they can be and this is a film that if I could, if I could go off the scale and give it at 11, I would, <laughs> to be quite honest. It's just, I love the performances. I love the effects. Uh, more than anything, the, I just love the actual storytelling. You know, the, the story that they can tell you and show you without telling or showing you, you know, what you think you're seeing. You know, you don't know what happened, you know who infected what, in what order they were infected, who was infected, who was part of the thing, who was not part of the thing, which, you know, did Palmer change, you know, Blair? Did Blair change Palmer? Did the dog change Palmer? Did, you know, was McCready part of it? We all just don't know. And I think all these years later, for the most part, I think uh, Carpenter and probably even Kurt Russell from some of the interviews that I've, I've read and Keith David and everybody has had a lot of fun with this film and debating it with the fans and with, you know, film scholars and reviewers and bloggers and podcasters like ourselves, you know, I, I think it has created an interesting dialogue between fans and a great debate. Sometimes the debate I've seen it get a little ugly on a couple of uh, thing fan websites and whatnot, but I don't think it needs to get that, you know, needs to get that down and dirty, but I, I, like you said, I am appreciative that this film exists. It's one, you know, it's one of my top ten favorite films of all time, and it's my favorite uh, Carpenter film. And I think it's one of those movies too, where it's you can't say that it can't be done. Like I, I guarantee that if someone has the cre creativity and the drive, they can make whatever they want. So I, that's I think that's a great thing that this movie does, where it's like, well. No one could ever even imagined what like the Blair thing would have looked like at the end of the movie, but they made it and they, they did it. it. It worked, you know. Yeah. 
with that being said, I think we have probably exhausted about every resource we possibly could about this movie. But then again, I have a feeling we could have done this uh, this particular show in a two-parter and probably still only feel like we barely uh, scratched the surface, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, I, I'm glad that we decided to do this one. I, I knew... I had a feeling when I asked you, you were going to pick this one. I had a feeling it was going to be this or Prince of Darkness for some reason was the ones I thought you were going to lean towards. But uh, I knew we were supposed to have another guest here with us this evening, but unfortunately they couldn't make it. So it was just a, a duo instead of a three-way. No, it's but all good. If we, we would have three, it would have been way longer as well because we would have been <laughs> each other and went even more off script. But yeah, Right, I, right. I think this is my favorite John Carpenter movie. I think I can say safely that out of out of your your theme in the month for the appreciation for JC, um, I, th- I think this is it. I mean, I think uh, he said he's had better movies, but I think to me this is my favorite one that he's done. Yeah, I agree. And now, like, I think this is his best movie, but one that that. It depends on which day you ask me, because sometimes my favorites can, you know, as I'm sure your favorites on your, you know, your top lists probably fluctuate and change places oh, yeah. from time to time. It's to me, it's always between this one and Escape from New York. I think Escape from New York it is at times a film that I like better because it's a more fun kind of film, even though it's very dark and very bleak at times too. But you know that also has to do with the, the Snake Plissken character being so iconic and whatnot. And Kurt but Russell, still, depends baby. depends on which day you ask me. I want to watch Tombstone right now. I'm looking at Kurt Russell. I'm just like I want Tombstone. I want. You know what? I was talking with Patty the other day that we should do a Tombstone and Bone Tomahawk uh, double feature. That thing. Uh, yeah, you should. And if you ever want to do a podcast on Tombstone, I'm I'm there any day, any hour. All right, right on. We may do that one of these days. Uh, the next couple of uh, appreciation months are going to be actor-based as opposed to director-based, uh, as this one was. So we may uh, we may tackle a Kurt Russell month here in the upcoming year. I'm not, I'm not saying for sure, but if we do, I will count you in for Tombstone. I will be there, sir. All right. Well, before we get going, um, do you have anything new you want to plug? I know we're getting you're deep into production meetings with uh, parallels and whatnot, but you got anything else going on? Well, that's really the only thing. I mean, we're a few months out of actually finally getting this thing done, which I say that with as much love as I can, but I just want it to be over with. You know, it's kind of the the thing where I've been now working on this for six years and it's been uh, funding on Indiegogo for a full year now, which is, is stupid, but it, we kept getting donations. So we just left it open. So, you know, whatever. Woohoo. Um, so I just, I, I'm, I'm moving addresses and homes right now. It's a year, like a, two months now after 2020, the mess and garbage that that was. Um, mm-hmm. But, I no, that's that's really it. I'm just I'm really happy that I was lucky enough to be on this this episode with you, sir. Well, I appreciate you being on here. This is uh, the what the third show, fourth show we've done together, and this is probably the most in depth we've gotten with something. I uh, the thing was a good pick. I was glad you you chose it. And everybody else, I think, was scared. <laughs> well, to be fair, I was scared about talking about this kind of movie because, I mean, I mentioned Mandy before, and it's it's easy to talk about a movie that you've never seen before. Like, it's a one-time watch. It's it's the whole you're, – you're doing your homework to do 
that kind of conversation. But when it's a movie that you've seen over and over again and a movie that's like put on a pedestal by some people or it's it's in that kind of uh, like like you were saying, everyone's seen it at least once. Hope, hopefully you have a good memory of it or a good opinion of the film. But man, that's like I never want to talk about like The Godfather or I mean, I'd love to talk about Goodfellas, but like I just don't feel – I don't feel confident in tackling like those, those kind of movies where they're so prolific where, I mean, like you were saying, people getting heated on some, some blogs and podcasts for the thing before. I think that's silly, but like, <laughs> I know it happens. Oh, and my I know opinion that, is right. And yours isn't. <laughs> yeah. But I just, I'm afraid of some of those movies and yeah, because we, we had postponed this before and I was like, Oh man, I had like built myself up for this, this conversation. And I was like, Oh, we got to delay it. But like, it's, it's fun. That's the whole, that's the whole purpose of this, this conversation and getting opinions out there and talking about stuff that we like. So that's all that I kept thinking of, but yeah, it's talking about a movie that multiple people have seen over and over again, I think is a lot harder than kind of blindly going into a movie and then just chatting about a review about it. Be like, oh yeah, I just watched this yesterday. You don't have 40 years of it to like digest in you and be, be every part of your inspiration. Cause that's the thing. I mean, I, you asked me at the beginning of this podcast when I saw it, I had to have seen it maybe when I was seven, seven or eight or nine, I think before I was double digit age, which at that point it would be 10 years or some odd years old because I was born in 89. Um, well, no, more than that, about 15. Uh, can't do math. But <laughs> it, had, it had already had a tenure before I saw it. And then, you know, the more time went on, I kept watching it and it kept being on TV. And, it, you know, either it was either edited for TV or I watched, finally got it on uh, DVD. And then it came out on Blu-ray. And now I have it on my phone. <laughs> I have, uh, you know, the highest quality that I can watching it on my little phone. And it's just, yeah, it's got a legacy. That's definitely a legacy movie. Yeah, I consider this to be the most, uh, at least for this show thus far, the most legendary film that we probably covered at cinema degeneration with this, maybe uh, in December when we did George Romero month with Dawn of the dead is probably another one. Uh, we early on in grindhouse pizzeria, we did Texas chainsaw massacre. So that's another huge one, but it's a, uh, it's kind of a, it's a daunting task to take on reviewing this film. Cause it's like, you know, we're, we're treading ground, that has already been shred, you know, and it's like, I, I always feel like, yeah, I consider myself an Uber fan or a mega fan, but you know, I feel like I'm, uh, you know, treading ground that has already been treaded. Like, like anybody going to care what I have to say, but I don't really care if anybody, uh, is interested in what I have to say, because if I cared, like, then I wouldn't be talking about it. It's like, well, everyone's read it, you know, it's, it's like going through the drive through at Wendy's being like, well, yeah, I mean, you know what's on the menu, but I want to read it this time. Like, I want to put an accent on it and give you an opinion. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad exactly. that I was a part. Right on. Well, thanks for being a part of it with me, sir. I appreciate it. And I appreciated all your input on the subject. It uh, enlightened, enlightened me to a couple of things. I will uh, probably in the next few weeks, well, once we get past the cruel shum summer shoot here get past that here in a couple of weeks i will probably watch it again uh just 
damn it, just because. Just yeah, because. probably. Will, like, will happen. <laughs> like, that's another thing you can <laughs> say. Like, you know that you're going to watch this movie again. Like, like uh, we were commenting on perfect movies. I think one of the most perfect movies is probably Memoirs of a Geisha. That movie is just phenomenal. Very completely a different genre of this, but like, you know that you're going to watch a movie again. If, once you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll watch that in two days or in a year from now or keep that as a DVD that's your most touched item. Like, yeah, just go ahead and, you know, I'll throw that back in. I'm going to watch the thing again probably in two to three months. I, I guarantee it. So, yeah. Yeah. I will never have a time in my life that I think somebody will say to me, hey, do you want to watch the thing? And uh, my answer would be no. I, I can't foresee that moment ever yeah. happening in my life. Same thing with Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. Be like, well, I got work in two hours. I guess I can call in. Uh, yeah, go ahead and throw <laughs> yeah. that extended, uh, extended edition on there. So Yeah, I was just going to say the extended edition because we're watching all four hours of this motherfucker. <laughs> Well, that being said, I think we'll call this a draw and an end to the evening. Um, I, I, I've appreciated having you on this particular episode, sir. It's been it's been real, it's been fun, and it's been real fun. So yeah, thank you sure. once again for for joining me, and hopefully I can I'll tell you off air what my next appreciation month is going to be, and maybe we can get you to come back in for that one. Absolutely. But, well, that being said, folks, you have been listening to Cinema Degeneration's John Carpenter Appreciation Month. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> you have been listening to the John Carpenter Appreciation Month, and we have been re- reviewing and doing a deep dive discussion on the 1982 The Thing. I have been your host, Cameron Scott. This has been my co-host, Daniel Goad, and we bid you a fond farewell. Thanks for listening. Mac wants the flamethrower. Mac wants the what? That's what he said. Now move. <laughs>